You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Uh, first of all, I, of course, want to welcome our audience. And um, as it turns out, I have just returned from a uh, speaking tour or mission tour in the United Kingdom, Ireland, and Scotland. And um, it was very gratifying to find out. I just showed up at a, a retreat house where I was due to speak in the highlands of Scotland. And a very charming uh, woman came up to me and said she listens every Saturday live to this show in Scotland. Um, and uh, given the time change there, it's from 8 to 9 p.m. It's, of course, from from uh, 2 to 3 p.m. Central Time in the U.S. And so it is very nice to know that uh, people listen to the show and that people even listen to the show around the world on um, over the Internet. So... Anyway, um, what I was planning to do on today's show is tell the story of uh, Rabbi Israel Zoli. Uh, you probably know if you've been listening for a while that sometimes I like to give the witness testimonies of other Jews who have entered the Catholic Church and shown a, a very particular kind of light on the truths of the Catholic Church from the perspective of a, a Jew who has entered. And there are a number of reasons to deal with uh, Rabbi Zoli. One is because he was the chief rabbi of Rome during the Holocaust under, of course, the reign of um, Pope Pius XII. And there's been a lot of calumny against Pope Pius XII about um, that he didn't do more to save the Jews during World War II. And in fact, the story of Rabbi Zoli itself gives a powerful witness to all that uh, Pius XII did to save the Jews, and very notably the Jews in Italy and in the Rome area during World War II, including some personal interaction with Rabbi Zoli. Rabbi Zoli as a chief rabbi of Rome, Pius XII as the Pope, and therefore they were working together in, in some efforts to save the Jews of Rome. So, my plan is to read the first-person witness testimony of Rabbi Zoli from one of my books. It's Honey from the Rock, 16 Jews Find the Sweetness of Christ. It's published by Ignatius Press and is available anywhere Ignatius Press books are sold, which is essentially every bookstore, uh, Christian and Catholic bookstores, but also secular bookstores like Barnes & Noble or Borders or whatever. And it's also, of course, available from Internet booksellers like uh, Amazon.com. So without further ado, I will simply read the story, most of which is the first-person witness testimony of Rabbi Zoli from Honey from the Rock. So here goes. Israel Zoli was born in 1881 into a wealthy Jewish family in Brody, a town in Poland just a few miles from the Russian border. His father owned a silk factory across the border in Russia. In 1888, the Russian government confiscated the factory without compensation, and the family was thrown into poverty. Only with great difficulty and sacrifice was the family able to enable Israel, a brilliant student, to complete his schooling and go on to higher studies. He eventually completed the necessary studies both to become a rabbi and to obtain a doctorate in philosophy. At the unprecedentedly young age of 37, he was named Chief Rabbi of Trieste, at the time one of the most important Jewish communities in Europe. After 20 years in that post, during which time he also taught at the University of Padua and wrote several well-received scholarly works, he was named Chief Rabbi of Rome. During the Nazi occupation of Rome, Rabbi Zoli worked heroically to help save the Jewish community. With the help of Pope Pius XII, he raised 50 kilos of gold to give the Nazis as a ransom to spare Rome's Jews. When he entered the church in 1945, 
Rabbi Zoli took Pius XII's baptismal name, Eugenio, as his own, in homage for all that the Pope had done to save Jews during the war. After becoming Catholic, Zoli was ostracized and calumniated by the Jewish community and thrown once again into poverty. He spent the remainder of his life teaching and writing, and he started a religious congregation dedicated to aiding Jews after their entry into the Catholic Church. He died in 1956 in Rome. The following account of his life and conversion is extracted from his autobiography, Before the Dawn. Let me just interject a couple of words. That um, one of the claims that is sometimes made, and sometimes made within the Catholic community by very well-meaning Catholics, is that Rabbi Zoli became Catholic to honor Pope Pius XII for all he had done to save the Jews. I don't think it has to be said that this is a very trivializing view of what religion is and what conversion is. Rabbi Zoli was a deeply religious man of great integrity. He would not have uh, entered the Catholic Church as a gesture of gratitude even to the Pope. The only reason he would enter the Catholic Church is if he was absolutely convicted of the truth of the claims of the Catholic Church and that Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah and that the Catholic Church was, in fact, the continuation of Judaism as the Jewish Messiah had always intended it to be. So even though it's meant as a positive statement that Rabbi Zoli became Catholic to honor Pius XII, it's really selling the Catholic faith, uh, the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church very, very short. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really, really trivializing the truth of the situation. Uh, we will get to that point in the conversion story, but Rabbi Zoli entered the Catholic Church in part as a result of a very, very direct experience of Jesus Christ. So back to Rabbi Zoli's witness testimony. Um, from uh, reading from Honey from the Rock. And uh, so here goes. I was born in 1881 in Brody, which had become part of Austria after the partition of Poland in 1795. I was the youngest in the family. There were three brothers and a sister older than myself. When I was very small, my father owned a large silk factory in Lodz in ex-Polish Russia. He was an upright man, well-known and respected. By the time I was seven, this is only a memory. Russia had forced every foreign-owned industry on Russian soil to be shut down, but the owner was not permitted to convert his property into cash. Thus, our family was plunged into straitened circumstances. My mother belonged to a family of learned rabbis. This family could boast of two centuries of intellectualism. My mother wished me to become a rabbi. It was from my father that I learned the great art of praying with tears. During the Nazi persecution, long years afterward, I lived near the center of Rome in a small room. There, in the dark, in hunger and cold, I would pray, weeping, O thou keeper of Israel, protect the remnants of Israel. Do not allow this remnant of Israel to perish. When I was eight years of age, I attended a Hebrew school. There, on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday... The teacher expounded to us the Hebrew texts, which first he made us read and translate. These texts were the Torah, the Psalms, and others. On Wednesday and all day Thursday, with the exception of two hours, and again on Friday until two o'clock in the afternoon, there was a repetition of what we were learning. This continual reading and translating helped me to memorize everything so that I knew my Hebrew texts by heart. On Saturdays, the teacher took me to the house of the chief rabbi of the synagogue, who gave me a kind of examination. As a reward, I would receive a sweet red apple. At this same time, I was attending an elementary school in addition to the religious school. The class was a large one, composed of about 30 Christians and six Israelites. Stanislaus, a widow's son, was my companion. He and his mother lived on the ground floor of a house in the suburbs, Once or twice a week, I would go to spend the afternoon with Stanislaus. The modest home had something in it very attractive for me. I was happy there. There was only a large square room and a small kitchen. That was all. In the middle of one wall 
hung a crucifix of plain wood with a branch of an olive tree over it. We boys never became boisterous or disorderly during our study or in the intervals. It seemed that in that white room and in the presence of the crucifix, one could not help being serene, gentle, and good. Sometimes, I did not know why, I would raise my eyes to that crucifix and gaze for a long time at the figure hanging there. This contemplation, if I may call it that without exaggeration, was not done without a stirring of my spirit. Why was this man crucified, I asked myself. Was he a bad man? Are all the wicked crucified? Why did so many people follow him if he was so wicked? Why are those who follow this crucified one so good? How is it that Stanislaus and his mother are so good and they adore this crucified one? Why do we boys become so different in the presence of this crucifix? It was thoughts like these that would pass through my mind as I gazed at the crucifix. This crucified one, moreover, awakened in me a sense of great compassion. I had the same strong impression of his innocence as of his pain. He was in agony. This man on the cross bows his head. He is very tired. A sweet sleep is about to envelop him. He does not cry out in his pain. He does not lament. He does not curse. On his face is no expression of hatred or resentment. The olive branch above his head seems to whisper softly of peace. No, he, Jesus, that man, now he was he for me with a capital H. He was not bad. He could not have been in any way wicked. Perhaps he was or perhaps he was not the servant of God whose canticles we read at school. Perhaps he was, perhaps he was not that sufferer of whom the master told us. I did not know. But of one thing I was certain, he was good. But then why did they crucify him? In the book of Isaiah, there are four canticles which present to us an innocent man, purer than any other in the world. He is stricken and humiliated, exhausted by so much suffering. He dies in silence, as in silence he suffered. Then the crowd seems to recover from its fury. Why have we tormented and put to death him who bore our sins? Why did I think so often of the crucifix in Stanislaus's home, affirming to myself with a lively feeling of sympathy that he was good, that he could not have been bad? More than once I saw again in spirit that thorn-crowned head, the blood-stained face, gentle, exhausted, the eyes half-closed, and I would ask myself, but why? I was about twelve years old at the time. An invisible someone had begun to knock on the door of my soul. I felt a great void. My soul was wounded. I yearned for a kindred spirit. Then I remembered once more the servant of God, of whom the prophet Isaiah speaks. I wanted to read and reread those canticles. There is Job, but more beautiful because more mysterious is the silence of the servant of God. It is a fertile silence. It speaks to the heart as God does, without the sound of voice. It leaves a void in my soul, enlarges the wounds and deepens them and causes them to bleed. We must listen to the silence of God and of his servant. Who was this servant of God? The answer brought to my mind the thought of Stanislaus, his white room, and of him hanging on the wall. He, the crucified in Stanislaus' big white room, and he whose voice called me calls everybody. He speaks, he calls, only he. His voice reaches me from afar, I am listening like the Beloved in the mystical canticle of canticles, and I hear him come from on high in the air as on the wings of a gentle wind. I do not see him, but I feel him near, always nearer. Then I wait and wait still longer, and my waiting becomes prayer. It is invocation. I invoke him, the one whom I know and yet do not know. So we see here, I'm interrupting, of course, again, the account of Rabbi Israel Zoli, 
of his own uh, from his own witness testimony, his own autobiography of how he came to the truth of the Catholic Church. And we see in the passage that I just read that it was the mere presence, so to speak, of a crucifix hanging in his Christian friend's house that um, deeply moved his soul and uh, in some ways transformed him and filled him with wonder and questions about who the crucified one could have been and how he could have been so good and been crucified and why the boys felt so much peace and behaved so well in the presence of the crucifix. And um, he felt him calling him. So uh, we see a lot here, and we see something which resonates with my own witness testimony of how I entered the Catholic Church as a Jew, which is basically not to minimize the importance of these sacramentals. Uh, the sacramentals are only objects in of themselves, of course. We're not idolaters. We don't worship statues. But we live in the physical material world, and yet um, behind it and through it and penetrating it is a far realer and more substantial spiritual world. And the spiritual world is continually interacting with the material world, and it interacts through sacramentals. In some ways, that's what a sacramental is. It's a material object that brings with it, in some sense, some spiritual activity, some spiritual action. Uh, holy water really has an effect. It really works. It really does something. It's really um, causing the spiritual world to act in a certain way on the material world. Um, this crucifix. And my suspicion is that blessed religious objects, blessed religious pictures, and blessed crucifixes probably are more substantial sacramentals than unblessed ones. Certainly a blessed crucifix is a um, sign into the spiritual world that brings with it some spiritual presence and some spiritual activity, which was clearly the case in uh, this account of Rabbi Zoli and was clearly instrumental in the grace of him uh Falling in love, essentially, with Jesus is what it amounts to, and falling in love with the suffering servant from Isaiah and from the um, promised Messiah in Judaism. Now, if one were to doubt the spiritual presence associated with sacramentals, one could read the account of an exorcist, the chief exorcist of Rome who recently passed away, Father Gabriel Amorth wrote, several books, very beautiful books, just recounting his experiences in performing exorcisms. And one of the tests to see whether somebody is really, uh, whether it's really a demonic presence in the person, whether it's really the devil acting in the person that's behind his uh, apparently possessed or or demon-infested behavior, is to hide, is basically to hide the, a, a crucifix in the room or, or to use holy water because the way that a, a possessed or demonically infested person uh, responds to and is aware of a sacramental, even if hidden, is a supernatural telltale giveaway that what's going on basically that but that there's uh spiritual entities acting through that person because he as an individual human being would be in no position to know about the hidden crucifix in the room but the uh the demons acting through him certainly do and similarly the way they behave when they are subjected to holy water and so forth so just a little digression to encourage um us as Catholics to make use of these sacramentals, to make use of blessed rosaries and crucifixes and holy pictures and holy water and so forth, and not to view them as a kind of medieval superstition that we've outgrown, but to view them as very powerful and useful instruments for bringing uh, the activity of the spiritual world, the activity of the angels and saints uh, into our lives and into our homes and into our rooms, as uh, this crucifix did in the case of Rabbi Zoli.
Anyway, I will return to his witness testimony now. Uh, before I do, let me just very briefly say that this is a live call and radio show, and if you wish to call, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, which is 6279. So, uh, continuing with Rabbi Zoli's witness testimony. My high school education completed, I had as my objective the University of Florence. In the city of Flowers, Florence, I lived gray and cold years in the midst of privations of both body and spirit. Here I received degrees in philosophy at the university, a PhD with psychology as a specialty, and at the rabbinical college, institutions a short distance from each other. All this work was done in Florence. Afterwards, in 1913, I was nominated vice rabbi at Trieste and became chief rabbi in 1918. I think it was towards the ends of 19, I think it was towards the end of 1917. One afternoon, I was alone in the house, writing one of my regular articles. I was feeling wholly detached from myself, absorbed in my work. Suddenly, without knowing why I did so, I put my pen down on the table and as, and as if in a trance, began to invoke the name of Jesus. I found no peace until I saw him, as if in a large picture without a frame, in the dark corner of the room. I gazed on him for a long time, without feeling any excitement, but rather in a perfect serenity of spirit. Neither then nor now, after thirty years, could I say what happened in my soul to produce such a phenomenon. I do not seek to penetrate the mystery. What did it all mean? To me now as then, the nearness of Jesus is sufficient. Was this experience objectively real or only subjective? I do not know, nor am I competent to analyze it. It was like other experiences under different forms that I have had since, in 1937 and 1938, and again in 1945. I had no desire to speak of it to anyone, Neither did I think of it as a conversion. What had happened concerned me and only me. My intense love for Jesus and the experiences I had concerned no one else, nor did they seem to me at the time to involve a change of religion. Jesus had entered into my interior life as a guest, invoked and welcomed. No denial or acceptance of a formal character entered into my mind. The Israelite community and the church represented religious life for me, each in itself. I felt myself to be a Hebrew because I was naturally a Hebrew, and I loved Jesus Christ. Neither Hebraism or Christianity seemed to interfere in my, life for, in my love for Jesus. Jesus was present in me, and I in Jesus. Well, we've come to about the um, halfway point in Rabbi Zoli's witness testimony, perhaps even a little bit past that. And we've also come to about the halfway point in the show today. And uh, we usually take a short musical break halfway through the show. Um, and we will at this point. And when we return, I will continue with the witness testimony of Rabbi Zoli and with some comments he made about the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic Church, which is, of course, the theme of the show. And with that, we'll be back in a few moments to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, on Radio Maria with me, Roy Shulman. Back in a few moments. In the valley of your pain 
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome back to our show for today. I have been uh, reading uh, the witness testimony of Rabbi Israel Zoli, the chief rabbi of Rome uh, during the Holocaust, who um, shortly after the war ended, entered the Catholic Church. And I've been uh, reading his witness testimony and occasionally stopping the reading in order to comment and discuss it a little bit. And I will continue to do so now. Um, back, oh, and I've been reading the witness testimony, uh, condensed version, which appears in my book, Honey from the Rock. So returning to the text, Rabbi Zoli re- remained the chief rabbi of Trieste from 1918 to 1938. During this period, he distinguished himself as an academic and a scholar, writing several important scholarly works and becoming professor of Semitic languages at the University of Padua, where many of his students were priests. As Zoli notes in his autobiography, quote, even at that time they were remembering me in their holy masses, asking God, as they told me years later, for my conversion. One of the books he wrote during this period was a study of Jesus of Nazareth entitled The Nazarene, which, although written from a Jewish perspective, was so consistent with the Catholic view that an archbishop told Zoli that he would have had no difficulty giving the book an imprimatur. In 1939, Zoli left Trieste to become the chief rabbi and spiritual leader of the Jewish community in Rome. Zoli's final conversion experience took place in 1944 while he was celebrating the Yom Kippur services, the most solemn holiday of the Jewish liturgical year, as chief rabbi of Rome, continuing in his own words. 
It was the Day of Atonement in the fall of 1944, and I was presiding over the religious service in the temple. The day was nearing its end, and I was all alone in the midst of a great number of persons. I began to feel as though a fog were creeping into my soul. It became denser, and I wholly lost touch with the men and things around me. And just then I saw with my mind's eye a meadow sweeping upward with bright grass. In this meadow I saw Jesus Christ clad in a white mantle, and beyond his head the blue sky. I experienced the greatest interior peace. If I were to give an image of the state of my soul at that moment, I should say a crystal clear lake amid high mountains. Within my heart I found the words, You are here for the last time. I considered them with the greatest serenity of soul. The reply of my heart was, So it is, so it shall be, so it must be. Later that day, my wife, my daughter, and I went home for supper after the fast. After supper, my wife went to her room, and so did my daughter. When I was tired, I went to the bedroom. The door of my daughter's room was shut. Suddenly, my wife said to me, Today, while you were before the Ark of the Torah, it seemed to me as though the white figure of Jesus put his hands on your head as if he were blessing you. I was amazed, but still remained very calm. At that very moment, we heard our younger daughter, Miriam, call from afar, Papa! I went to her room. What's the matter? I asked. You know, Papa, tonight I have been dreaming that I saw a very tall white Jesus, but I don't remember what came next. It was a few days later that I resigned my post in the Israelite community and went to a quite unknown priest in order to receive instruction. An interval of some weeks elapsed until the 13th of February, when I, was, when I received the sacrament of baptism and was incorporated into the Catholic Church, the mystical body of Jesus Christ. So ends the witness testimony of Rabbi Israel Zoli, um, who changed his name, actually, or took the baptismal name Eugenio uh, when he was baptized in, honor, in order to honor Pope Pius XII, whose baptismal name was Eugenio, for all that Pope Pius XII had done to aid the Jews, particularly uh, in a very special way, the Jews of Rome, to protect them from the Nazis during World War II. Uh, one aspect of that help, which is not... Uh, explicitly given in this uh, witness testimony of Rabbi Zoli, is that when the Nazis occupied Rome, they told the Jewish community that in order, that basically they would be deported to the extermination camps unless they came up with a ransom of 50 kilos of gold within, I believe it was 72 hours. And if they paid that ransom of 50 kilos of gold, they would be spared deportation from to the extermination camps. Well, the Jewish community uh, contributed uh, everyone in it all the gold that they had. They they gave their wedding rings and and any gold objects they had and so forth to be melted down to contribute to that fifty kilos. But um, it looked like they were going to come up short. At which point, Rabbi Zoli went to the Vatican and uh, told them of the situation. And Pope Pius XII responded that any amount of gold that the Jewish community is short at the end of those 72 hours will be made up by the Vatican, that the Vatican will contribute the necessary gold so that the total is, in fact, 50 kilos to avoid the deportation of the Jews in Rome. There are also um, many, many, many stories of, of thousands of Jews who were hidden. Uh, Pope Pius XII gave orders to the convents and monasteries in the Rome area, even the strictly cloistered ones, to hide Jews, to basically violate their own rules of um, cloister and take in Jews fleeing the Nazis and hide them in the convents and monasteries. And there were, um, I believe it was thousands of Jews hidden in uh, Castle Gandolfo and in the um, Swiss Guard, uh, quarters in the Vatican itself. 
to hide them from the Nazis. He did a tremendous amount to save um, uh, thousands of Jews from deportation from Rome. And uh, the uh, uh, Israel cabinet minister, excuse me, an Israeli cabinet minister, cabinet minister of the newly formed state of Israel shortly after the war, uh, Pincus Lapide, wrote a book in which he estimated that Pope Pius XII's intervention had saved the lives of, by his estimate, 780,000 Jews from extermination under the Nazis. Um, so let me go on in the, in the moments that remain, actually, uh, in, the, in the time that remains in the show, to some of Rabbi Zoli's comments about his own conversion. So now I'm going back to reading words written by Rabbi Zoli about his own conversion. The convert, like someone who is miraculously healed, is the object and not the subject of the prodigy. It is false to say of someone that he himself converted, as if it were a matter of personal initiative. One does not say of someone who is miraculously healed that he healed himself, but that he was healed. One must say the same of the convert. So anyway, interjecting again, this is very, very true and is certainly worth remembering that when somebody converts to the fullness of truth about God and man, which is found in the Catholic Church, it is not his own initiative. It's not something he does out of himself any more than somebody who is miraculously healed of the waters of, at the waters of Lourdes is healing himself. The the convert who receives the grace of faith in the Catholic Church is the recipient of grace. He's the recipient of the miracle. He's not the producer of the miracle. Uh, a conversion is the reception of miraculous grace. It's not the production of something coming out of the convert. Well, what's the next step in the logic here? The next step in the logic here is that if it, if the convert is the recipient of grace, that grace came from somewhere. Of course, it came from God. But we know what activity, what human activity results in grace coming from God. And it's prayer and it's the offering of sacrifices. So the conversion of anyone to the truth of the Catholic Church, and I might say especially of Jews to the truth of the Catholic Church, is the fruit of the prayers predominantly of Catholics, to God for the grace of conversion for Jews and the offering of sacrifices to God for the grace of conversion of Jews. I think many of us are aware that St. Dieter Stein, who perished during the Holocaust, wrote a spiritual last will and testament in which she offered her suffering and her death for the conversion of the Jews. I will read a brief passage from that last will and testament of Edersteyn. I joyfully accept in advance the death God has appointed for me in perfect submission to his most holy will. May the Lord accept my life and my death for his honor and glorification, for the atonement of the unbelief of the Jewish people, and for this, that the Lord may be accepted by his own people and that his kingdom may come in glory." Um, one might fruitfully speculate, was the miraculous grace that brought about Zoli's conversion, the apparition of Jesus, the, the uh, vision of Jesus during that Yom Kippur service, was that in part the fruit of the grace that Edelstein earned by her sacrifice of her life and, and her suffering at the hands of the Nazis for the grace of the conversion of the Jewish people. Maybe it was, maybe not. Maybe the grace of my conversion was the fruit of Edelstein's sacrifice. I personally suspect that it was in part, but it was certainly the fruit of the grace earned by prayers and sacrifices of faithful Catholics for the conversion of the Jews. So I would like to encourage all of our listeners um, not to forget that intention. Uh, of course, subject to what you feel moved by God. In other words, some people may be moved to pray for the conversion of Jews. Other people may not at all be moved in that direction, and they may be moved you know, for very other intentions for their prayers. And, of course, that's to be absolutely, infinitely respected. But 
should you feel moved to pray for the conversion of the Jews, it certainly is an intention that um, would be extremely charitable for many reasons. One is that it is through the Jews that the rest of the world received the greatest gift that God ever gave mankind, which is, of course, the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity as Jesus, and all of the fruits of that incarnation, life, passion, and death, uh, through the sacraments of the Catholic Church, and that came to the world through the Jews. So in simple justice, it would seem that returning the favor to the Jews by praying for their conversion would be a very worthwhile act. Um, another reason is simple charity, because we know, I hope we know, that nobody, well, basically the greatest, the, the best relationship between God and mankind available between birth and death is the relationship that's available through faith in Jesus and through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And therefore, by bringing someone into that relationship, they are bringing them into the condition of benefiting from the greatest gift that God ever man gave mankind. So it's a, a great, great, great act of spiritual charity, so to speak, to um, pray for the conversion of people who do not have the gift of faith. And yet uh, there are two more reasons. One is, of course, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus wept over the failure of his own people to recognize him when he wept over Jerusalem uh, shortly before the crucifixion in that passage in Matthew. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my uh, wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. So we know that the conversion of the Jews is very dear to Jesus' heart. The Blessed Virgin Mary, of course, is a Jew, so one can easily imagine that it would be very pleasing to our Blessed Mother to pray for the uh, conversion of her relatives, so to speak, other Jews into the Catholic Church. And um, uh, perhaps I'll read a prayer for the conversion of the Jews from the First Vatican Council, if I have time on the show, which makes an explicit reference to that. And the final reason to pray for the conversion of the Jews is that we know as Christians, we know that the uh, second coming can't happen until there's a widespread conversion of the Jews. As Catholics, we know that from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 674 says, quote, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. I'll just repeat that more slowly. The glorious Messiah's coming, in other words, the return of Jesus in glory, is suspended at every moment of history in other words, is waiting at every point in time, is just waiting for his recognition by all Israel. In other words, the widespread conversion of the Jews. And if our if a listener is not Catholic but Protestant, and therefore the Catechism of the Catholic Church holds no weight, I will point out that that Catholic doctrine in the Catechism is based strictly on Scripture, largely on Romans 11, where St. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, brethren, I want to understand. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel, until the full number of the Gentiles have come in, and so all Israel will be saved. In other words, that a veil has been cast over the eyes of the Jews that prevent them from seeing that Jesus was the Messiah until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel will be saved. So. If one wants to see the second coming, then that's yet another reason to pray for the conversion of the Jews. Now, going back to um, the words now of Rabbi Zoli, um, is conversion in infidelity, in infidelity towards the faith previously professed? Faith is an adherence, not to a tradition or family or tribe or even nation. It is an adherence of our life and our works to the will of God as it is revealed to each in the intimacy of conscience. Conversion consists in responding to a call from God. A man is not converted at the time he chooses, but in the hour when he receives God's call. When the call is heard, he who receives it has only one thing to do, obey. Paul is converted. Did he abandon the God of Israel? Did he cease to love Israel? It would be absurd to think so. But then the convert is one who feels impelled 
by an irresistible force to leave a pre-established order and seek his own proper way. It would be easier to continue along the road he was on. Conversion is light renewed, love of God renewed. The convert is a man who has died and has risen again. But the Spirit of God breathes where it wills and how it wills. Unconsciously, quite unconsciously, I was beginning to find in Christianity a springtime of the Spirit, full of the expectation of new life made eternal. Christianity represented for me the object of a longing for a love which should temper my soul's winter, in incomparable beauty which should quench my desire for beauty. In the words of the Canticle of Canticles, winter is now past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have appeared in our land, the time of pruning is come, the voice of the turtle dove is heard. The slow preparation for spiritual rebirth is much like the preparation which takes place in nature. All is accomplished in silence, and no sign appears of the wondrous event to come. All of a sudden, it seems, the earth is covered with green and the trees are decked with red and white blossom. Like snow, crystals, petals float in the air, and there is promise of fruit. One great biological process has reached completion, and a fresh cycle of life is taking on concrete reality, becoming crystallized. The dying we saw was only apparent. It meant the transformation of the life lived into a new life, a life to be lived. What seemed to die in me had left in my soul the germs of a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. When he was asked why he had given up the synagogue for the church, Zoli's reply was, quote, But I have not given it up. Christianity is the integration, completion, or crown of the synagogue. For the synagogue was a promise, and Christianity is the fulfillment of that promise. The synagogue pointed to Christianity. Christianity presupposes the synagogue. So you see, one cannot exist without the other. What I converted to was the living Christianity. And so ends the chapter on Rabbi Israel Zoli in Honey from the Rock. As you see, Zoli did not consider himself a converted, as in one who changes from one religion to the other. As he said, what I converted to was the living Christianity, the fulfillment of uh, Judaism, which is Christianity, and in particular, Christianity in its fullest expression in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And becoming Christian did not uh, make Rabbi Zoli, uh, result in Rabbi Zoli feeling he had turned his back on the Jewish people, but on the contrary, he started a religious order uh, to work for um, the to to work to give the Jewish people the greatest possible conceivable benefit, which is of course the grace of conversion and entry into the Catholic Church. Now, this sense that Zoli had of uh, the Christianity simply being the fulfillment of the promise of uh, Judaism, which and his hunger for other Jews to find the truth that he found in the Catholic Church is shared by virtually other, every other Jew. It's certainly shared by every Jew that I know personally who has entered the Catholic Church, but it's shared by uh, every Jew that I'm aware of in history who has entered the Catholic Church. Certainly shared by St. Paul. Remember, he said that he would willingly give up his salvation for the conversion of his fellow Jews. And there's no greater sacrifice, needless to say, than giving up one's salvation. I will read a couple of other um, quotes from Jews who entered the Catholic Church uh, that just underline this, that, that repeat the same sentiment. Benjamin Disraeli, who was the Prime Minister of Britain in the 1860s, said, quote, The Second Testament is avowedly only a supplement. Jesus came to complete the Law and the Prophets. Christianity is completed Judaism, or it is nothing. Isaac Lichtenstein, who was 40 years a rabbi in Hungary before his conversion, uh, and we're talking about the tail end of the 19th century, wrote, 
from every line in the New Testament, from every word, the Jewish spirit streamed forth light, life, power, endurance, faith, hope, love, charity, limitless and indestructible faith in God. And finally, Joseph Lansman, a Polish Talmud scholar who became Catholic, has God opened our eyes and brought us out of bondage into liberty, out of darkness into his marvelous light, in order that we should leave our nation in its spiritual darkness without knowledge of Messiah, if we do not care who should. And that is why I am doing this show, and that is why I wrote my books, and that's why I um, go from parish to parish whenever invited to speak about my witness testimony and about the rule of Judaism and salvation is precisely that, which is if other Jews are going to come to the fullness of Judaism, which is to be found in the Catholic Church, it's going to be the fruit of the prayer of good Catholics. And so I am here to beg those prayers, and that is a large part of the purpose of the show. Not the only purpose of the show on Radio Maria, but a large part of the purpose of the show, which is, of course, Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, which you've been listening to this past hour. I want to thank you for joining us and invite you to join us again next week for Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.